Hello everyone. Wow, what a nice surprise for all of us. Since it is almost Christmas, we at Urban Impact wanted to share something special with you. Something nobody has ever heard before. For those who don't know who we are, we are an agency from Berlin, scouting, connecting and helping startups to grow in Europe. My name is Sophie, I'm part of Urban Impact and I'm your host for this episode. This format, a podcast, has been in our minds for a while now. And we wanted to take this opportunity to publish our first episode around Christmas. We call this podcast City Rebels, as it is focusing on people that make a real difference for us and their cities. These people, the City Rebels, understood the issues of today and they want to change them. Through our work, we have met some of them this and last year, realizing that there are amazing stories out there, which most of you, us included, haven't even heard about yet. So this episode, we had the chance to talk to Anthony Townsend. Some of you might know about him already, but let me briefly introduce him. Anthony wrote a book called Smart Cities, Big Data, Civic Hackers and the Quest for New Utopia in 2013. And we believe that he was one of the first at that time to say, hold on guys, Smart Cities not the corporate utopia everyone's trying to tell you about. It is rather the diversity of actors in the cities, bottom-up or also known as grassroots movements, that bring real change into our city. For example, through civic hacking. And Anthony brought together those stories in his book. So, long story short, Anthony was the one opening up the debate on city rebels, and we believe that he was the first one of his kind in doing so. So, let me take you back to the time when Jonas and Dominic actually met Anthony in the InfraLab back in November 2018, which is an innovation space of all Berlin utility companies at Europe campus in Schöneberg. Anthony came to Berlin for a week and after showing him around the capital and introducing him to some of the smart city activities going on here, the three sat down to record this episode together. So let's say we keep it original, 60 minutes, full length, and we just hope you can gain as many amazing insights as we could back then during our conversation with him. The interview is all about smart cities, how we grew up and how childhood experiences can transform and shape our lives. And also about his upcoming book, Ghost Road, he is currently working on and which will be published next year. All right, let's jump straight in and apologies for the sound quality in some parts, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. All right, cool. So um, maybe let me start, Anthony. Really, we're really thrilled to have you here with us. Also for those couple of days in Berlin, um, really great to also like having had all of those conversations already with you. Um, and so I'm sitting here also with uh, with Dominic, and we are in the infra lab right now on the Europe campus, which is sort of the model district for sustainable urbanization um, uh, in Germany. So um, I think it's, it's quite a, a neat place to be in for our little um, conversation. And what I actually wanted to start off with is ask you about sort of like what brought you to this whole mobility topic? Like what, what inspired you? Like what was your traje personal trajectory, your personal interest in it? Uh, well, I've been looking at the intersection of um, technology broadly, but specifically... Um, information and communication technology and cities for over 20 years. Um, when I was um, a teenager, 
I got my first computer. Uh, I lived um, far outside the city, and I used um, my modem, my 300 baud modem, which was about you know the slowest way you could telecommunicate um, ever, to you know reach across the landscape and try to connect to the city, connect to the pre-internet, the proto-internet, the world of information that was starting to, to, to link up. Um, and for me, it was like a way of traveling, um, even though I, I couldn't really travel to the city. Um, and so that, that, uh, that like substitution of telecommunications and, and mobility was something that like, I understood from a very, very early age, very intuitively. Um, and so as I grew up and um, that became a reality for lots more people um, in lots more ways. Where did you grow up? Uh, in New Jersey, mm -hmm. in southern New Jersey at the beach um, in a resort town. So the town I lived in um, went from a population of 100,000 on a busy summer weekend to 5,000 in the middle of the winter. You know, and they would, they would turn the traffic signals off from, you know, red and green to blinking. Um, was that depressing? Yeah, I mean, it really it changed. It changed. If you ever listen to, like, Bruce Springsteen songs, like, that's sort of the soundtrack of, of my life growing up, like these empty beach towns. Um, so, you know, we looked to technology as, like, an exit. Um, you know, Springsteen had fast cars. We had, like, fast computers, right? That was, like, that was like our way of uh, figuring out how to, uh, how to, how to get out. Um, and so I eventually did get out, go to the university in the city, and um, grew interested in, in how cities and computers were, were coming together. Um, and that snowballed over the years um, and eventually became this thing that people started calling smart cities. And I ended up at MIT um, studying with Bill Mitchell, um, who was the one that actually coined that term. Um, in the early Which year was this? Uh, he's, he, he started a group. Uh, I was there in the late 90s when he was the dean of the architecture school. Um, and it was after he left that, that post and went over to the media lab, he started a group called the, uh, the Smart Cities Group uh, at the media lab in like 2002, 2003. Oh, that was very early then. That was, yeah. And that Before was, IBM. Before IBM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that was when... Um, as I understand that term first, like, really entered the vocabulary. Um, I don't know if he borrowed it from somewhere else. Um, unfortunately, he passed away uh, before I got to ask him. But, um, yeah, and then IBM borrowed it and changed it to Smarter Cities, because um, I guess they couldn't trademark Smart Cities since he had already used Smart Cities. But how, what about but his, so, so, how, what about so, so, his description, sort of like well, so, how he taught, uh, how he just uh, you know inspired you? Like what was it? How did he describe it? Well, let me let me answer your question about mobility first. Yeah. So so the the interest in mobility um, was not just because like that had been a problem that that isolation for me was a very personal thing that that you know I understood. Um, but uh, also because that is the area where I've seen this technology and this movement like really impact people's lives. Um, 
you know, there are a lot of sectors of urban infrastructure, urban government, urban services where people are identifying opportunities and seeing, ex you know, exciting things that are possible, whether it's energy or um, public service delivery or health or wh whatever it is, um, where information technology can make a big difference. Um, but many of them have been very, very slow to, to be realized. Um, energy is a great example of one where like, it's just a massive socio-technical economic shift that has to happen, and there's big barriers to the shift in all, all three. We have to change people's habits, we have to change the economy, and we have to change the whole infrastructure and, and the technology base. Um, and it's, it's a lot of things that have to get unlocked together, and it's, it's happening, but it's happening slowly. Um, in, and, and a lot of it's invisible. Um, in transport, it just, things have lined up. Um, they've lined up, uh, you know, part of it's chance, part of it is, uh, you know, luck. Um, uh, but it's lined up in a very tangible way. Um, part of it is the fact that consumer economies have been harnessed. Um, you know, we've seen startups come in, we've seen entrepreneurs come in and find the opportunities and, and exploit them. We've seen investors get excited and dump money in. Um, we've seen um, regulators uh, both uh, get out of the way uh, and also make innovation possible, or just be so clueless that the industries could run around them, or the innovators could run around them. Um, and the benefits have reached, you know, rich and poor and everybody in between. So, um, you know, that to me is like, that's what I wanted to do with my life. Like, I wanted to work at this intersection of technology and cities in a way that, like, reached... A lot of people. So was this, just to understand, was this more through the studies you pursued? Or was it this like one moment, this Eureka, no. oh my god, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? No, I mean, I think it's, it's, it was just seeing that that was kind of where the water was flowing downhill. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing, seeing the evidence on the ground in cities. Um, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002... A lot of talking about smart cities was was daydreaming. Like it was, won't it be great when um, you know, we were still s looking at the proposals for things like location-based services and saying, won't it be great when we can track everyone's cell phone and deliver these services that are based on location? What will we do? How will we re reorganize the city? And when those things finally started arriving, watching the applications come out and watching people's behavior change. Um, you know, seeing the first mobility services arrive and then seeing real estate developers respond to that and change the kinds of housing that they wanted to build. Um, you know, and then seeing entrepreneurs respond to that and come up with uh, like the startup transit screen in the US that, that makes screens that they sell to real estate developers that to show all the, um, all the buses and trains that are arriving in the neighborhood. And it's just, you know, one thing feeding off of another. Um, and, uh, you know, realizing that this, this big 
system is reconfiguring itself and that that's something that's important and that we can study and that it's really happening um, to me was just incredibly exciting because I had been, I had been saying this like since the mid nineties um, and uh, had a very difficult time with my, my, my teachers, my professors, um, my peers in academia who thought it wasn't important. Um, they didn't understand why I was interested in this. They didn't understand where it fit into the traditional disciplines in urban planning. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a real validation and, um, you know, just, uh, to me, it, it, it helps tie together, like, all the um, things that I had learned and, and uh, kind of um, made it relevant to the future, mm. I guess. So I think most people, you know, they obviously know your book, Smart Cities, mm. when it came out in 2013, I think? Yes. Um, what... What led to the book? Okay. Like, what did you do before that also, before sort of like you became so, you know, well-known as uh, one of the thought leaders in that space? So, um, I spent most of the 2000s working, um, working as a consultant uh, at a think tank in California called the Institute for the Future. So I did a lot of work... Um, with big companies, helping them think about this stuff. Um, really, it was a lot of helping big American Fortune 500 companies understand uh, global urbanization, and particularly global urbanization in the context of social networks and, and mobile communications, um, which were really, really, I think, two of the big ingredients of smart cities. Um, and... Um, You know, they didn't really have any basis to understand that. Most, most of these business leaders had grown up in American suburbs, um, driving cars back and forth to offices and sitting at desks and talking on phones and using fax machines. Um, you know, email was still kind of new for these guys. Um, they barely spent any time in the global south. If they had, it had been in like a resort somewhere, you know, golfing. Um, so we were teaching them, you know, what the rest of the world looked like. Um, something else that I, that I had done right after grad school was help start a uh, community wireless network in New York City that uh, called NYC Wireless that um, uh, wasn't quite as, um, you know, radical as the, the group here in Berlin, um, Freifunk, is that what it's mm -hmm. called? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we weren't trying to, like... Um, set up like an alternative free internet to challenge the, the telecom sector. Um, we were really just interested in providing access in public space um, and challenging the idea that you needed to pay for access in a park. Um, but, um, you know, it really, uh, it really helped me develop this idea that um, there is like a grassroots vision of the smart city that isn't like a telecom provider's vision of the smart city. Um, and so what happened around 2008, uh, when the financial crisis hit, was, um, you know, a lot of the big IT companies all of a sudden saw um, their, their main, like, corporate clients suddenly stop spending on IT 
right? So all these Fortune 500 companies I've been consulting for suddenly looked at, okay, how can we like cut back on expenses? Um, so they fired all the futurists. Um, so our but revenue, no our revenue was unemployed. No, well, we weren't unemployed, but we definitely saw a cutback in business. Um, they stopped spending on IT. Um, so Cisco, IBM, and Siemens, you know, they don't just do IT, but they definitely, Siemens was affected by this. Um, and uh, at the same time, governments all around the world started stimulus spending. And so there were a couple of very smart strategy people at particularly IBM, but also at Cisco, came up with this idea that, well, you know, the, the logistics solutions and the, the global IT and the, all these technologies that we've been developing for Walmart and Exxon and all these global corporations to run their global supply chains and their global enterprises for the last 20 years, you know, those platforms might also be good for running the very large, complex enterprises of cities. Because running a city government is just like running a multinational corporation. It's the same problem. This was their assumption. And so that was really how Smarter Cities was conceived at IBM. It was really just kind of a pivot of something that had worked into a different market. Um, and uh, they launched on this campaign. And... Um, you know, I, I really uh, reacted pretty, pretty negatively to that because it, it had a lot of hubris. It, um, IBM in particular came in really aggressively, um, really um, with very little sensitivity to um, the political, social context of how cities make decisions and set priorities and who the stakeholders are. Um, it caught a lot of people by surprise because IBM has such a long history of working with government. Um, and there were many missteps. And um, it was this very uh, old-fashioned, like, kind of 20th century reductionist, rationalist, top-down way of thinking about decision-making that was totally out of sync with, um, with the way that planning and decision-making, and to the extent that they were digging up like methodologies for urban modeling and planning that had been tried like in the 60s and discarded. I mean, these were like 40, 50-year-old methods of urban systems modeling, um, like Jay Forrester's uh, work, um, and just totally out of context. I mean, it was it was it was really bizarre. Um, and so, you know, I saw this happening, and um, and Cisco was doing their own stuff and um, doing it in China in particular, mm -hmm. and kind of selling the snake oil to the Chinese government that like we're going to fix all of all of the bad decisions you're making about urbanization in China um, we're going to fix it with video conferencing <laughs> I mean seriously like this, 
this was the literal pitch. You were there. For Sounds the, like a great. Pitch. You were there for the twenty twenty ten. Yeah, I was there in Shanghai um, uh, at the time studying it. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but I think this is this is sort of the the high level message. Um, uh, 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 some of this. So, I felt the need to respond to that and to show all the other kinds of visions that we're starting to develop of um, smart cities that were going to be, you know, essentially vernacular, built by people using the tools that they had at hand um, for their own priorities, you know, for their own purposes uh, under their control. The way cities have been built. Um, throughout the millennia. Um, you know, most buildings aren't built by multinationals, they're built by families. <clears throat> um, financed by savings, um, and, you know, renovated and extended over time. And so this sort of idea of incremental, hmm. uh, organic design and expansion, um, you know, in many ways, like how apps and websites and, the, and these kinds of things have grown. Um, so these are the issues you seen five years ago, right? And mm -hmm. in this time, do you think is it, is it progress or did it change for better? Or do you think? I think um, I think you know we've seen a tremendous amount of that grassroots innovation. Um, in terms of, of ideas, um, cities have definitely rejected the smart city in a box vision fully. Um, and we've even gotten to the point in the last year where um, when I hear people from McKinsey consultants talk about smart cities, they have embraced, you know, my point of view. Um, which to me... That, is, that like, is quite a feat. I, I honestly huh? cannot think of like a greater measure of success um, than that. But I think it also makes so much sense because it just didn't work. No, it didn't. The it didn't, other it approaches didn't did not produce no. the kind of results that everyone it, was it hoping did, for. It didn't sell because, and this this was, you know, why I knew I was right before I even started writing the book was because the people in the cities were telling me that what they were getting pitched was insane. Um, you know, and this is in the book, the people from Boston and people in London telling, you know, telling me like that the things they were hearing from IBM were totally wrong, that they didn't understand how people in cities mm -hmm. make decisions. I just um, wonder if... The cities aren't run like businesses. If using a past sense for that isn't too optimistic, given the story of Huawei and Duisburg. And I come from Poland, and how smart cities now rolls out to Polish cities. It's exactly the way how you described it was in 2013, yeah. or like the box solutions, right? Yeah. So I, I just wonder how much of it is the US perspective, where city already grasped the idea that it's not the way, and how does the rest of the world is catching up about this idea? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's certainly different parts of the world are going to be at different stages of development. Um, different parts of the world have different starting points, too. Um, I've done a lot of the work since then in Latin America, um, and there's some basic services um, and basic functions that governments in Latin America, you know, need a company like Siemens to come in and just sign a contract and do it, right? Like, mm -hmm. they don't need citizen participation in 
you know, making sure that the, the, the water uh, sanitation system is operating. They need a German engineering company to come <laughs> in and make sure the water is clean and delivered effectively, right? At the price that was agreed upon um, on time. There are certain things that have to be done uh, in a centralized fashion, uh, according to standards. And I, I make this point in the book, you know, that like the, the global engineering complex, the, the, the IT industry has a lot to offer, but it can't set the agenda. It can't be the purveyor of the vision. It can't be the creator of the vision. And that was what I was reacting to, mm. was IBM saying, we have the vision. Cisco saying, we have the vision. Um, what I was saying is cities have to provide the vision, and then the companies can come yeah. in and say, okay, here's how we'll implement it. Um, you know, in, in retrospect, and I, I think I also did give them credit in the book, um, you know, IBM spent a lot of its money teaching mayors like what's possible, what this technology can actually do. Um, and I think that was valuable. Um, there were a lot of overpromises, um, things that have not yet been delivered, uh, things that didn't work. Um, and we see that with other technologies like Watson. I mean, this is a, a well-documented thing that the, the marketing people at IBM have oversold Watson so much um, that, that it doesn't do any of the things that they've claimed it does. Um, so, you know, you take that with a grain of salt, but... Um, I think, all in all, you know, the, the, the ecosystem is actually working, and the movement is marching forward. There are definitely um, hiccups and obstacles, and, but they're all learning opportunities for the most part. Um, but also learning opportunities on all sides yeah, yeah. involved. Yeah. I think this is one of the main misconceptions is always that, oh, well, just the, co the big corporates are the bad guys. I don't necessarily think so. You know, I think, like you said, you know, there's also so much to be learned from for the startups, you know, yeah. how a city functions yeah. and how to work with a big corporate or like from the city's perspective, like what is out there in terms of innovation that could actually make our dysfunctional system maybe at the time uh, much better. So yeah. I think it's, it's really this, um, you know, it, almost like this, this, it should be a joint pursuit right. of like trying to learn and better understand each other. And because the, the, it, it, I don't know what, what, what your um, perspective on it is um, in terms of top down versus bottom up, how it's often pitched, but um, um, whether that dichotomy is really um, the right way of looking at it. Um, but I think one of the things that was very clear from your book and I think what, what, what really um, struck a nerve at the time was there was so much happening on this, um, on you know, this diversity of stakeholders. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you popular, popularized the idea also of the civic hacking movement and all mm -hmm. the stuff that Code for America and all of those other organizations were doing. And um, uh, what was their response also maybe to your book? And also, what has happened? How do you do? You see this whole um, part of the story you were telling. Um, how has that developed? Uh, I, before we go on, I just you know I want to say like I think um, the top down versus bottom up thing is uh, there are a lot of other people out there who have taken very like anti corporate stance in this whole discussion, and 
um, you know, like Adam Greenfield is a good friend. Um, his book came out right around the same time as mine, Against the Smart City. Mm. Very clear. Um, you know, I didn't call my book Against the Smart City. Um, and, you know, the point I just made, I think there is a role for these companies. And, and that role is, is scale. Um, and I think history has proven me right on this. If you look at the record of the last five years, the thing that industry has achieved that the grassroots, the bottom up, has not achieved is scale. Um, whether it's Uber or Airbnb or whatever it is, they may not be companies that everybody likes. They um, may have done a lot of nasty things, but they've also delivered a lot of value. Um, they've done it all over the world. Um, and they have pushed a lot of interesting ideas really, really far um, in a very short period of time. So they've mobilized a lot of action, uh, which you know, in and of itself is worth something. Um, and you know, maybe we can do a better job in the future harnessing that action in a, in a more sustainable, productive, equitable direction for labor or whatever it is. Um, and, and those companies, I think, are learning those lessons, um, some of them, but um, they have achieved scale. And like, if, you, if, if the urgency of the challenges we face, whether it's climate change or poverty or uh, managing a refugee crisis are things that matter, time, time matters, right? Um, like we're Look, there are 12 more years for the SDGs right, to, years, be, right. to, to be achieved. We, we have, we're urbanizing. This is the one shot we get, right? This is, this is, this is it. We're building the cities now. Um, you know, this is Paul, Paul Romer uh, at NYU, who just won a Nobel Prize uh, economics. You know, he always says this, like, we're building the cities we're going to live with for the next couple thousand years. Uh, and it's like, yeah, that's it. This is it. This is like humanity's time. These are the salad days. You mean the decisions we make now will, will lock this in? Yeah, our hours. population is going to peak like around 2080, and then we're all just going to get old. <laughs> <laughs> and the population is going to decline. Like this is, this is really, this is the peak of human civilization in terms of activity. And, Wait for super AI. Material. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is the most people, the most stuff. So, um, you know, and it's, it's the crisis in mm. terms of, of, of our habitat, right? Yeah. So I, I think making some mistakes, like not getting the system perfect, but getting the big things right at scale, maybe is a little more important. So... Um, you know, that's why I, I feel like I've kind of been vindicated in having that more balanced view um, after, after seeing what's happened in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, I wish there was less collateral damage. Um, you know, I wish Uber treated its workers more fairly. Um, you know, I wish Airbnb didn't displace people, um, but you know the fact that they pioneered new models for mobility, new models for managing urban housing, I think has been a, a net gain. Speaking mm. not only of those tech giants, and also you mentioned before that investors 
get the recently attraction and the mobility. I wanted to ask you the questions, how do you perceive the role of, of, in, of professional investors, of, of venture capital in the creation of cities? And as an example, uh, let's discuss Berlin when recently the investments in mobility just pretty much exploded. And uh, from, my, uh, from my experience, the investors don't usually take into consideration the complexity of the city or the theory of, of uh, more urban transportation, let's say. So even to say more, I would say this is sometimes perceived as the distractions to the healthy investment decision process, right? And I just wonder how much of this reflection should be there and is, it, is there any risk related to the fact that there probably is not enough of it or this is the way to go this is how we create a city with with the market force um well you know there's always going to be smart money and dumb money um i think any investment community has that um having more smart money is always better um it's gonna attract more entrepreneurs, that's going to attract better entrepreneurs, it's going to create more breakout successes, uh, it's going to create a better flow of innovations within the ecosystem. Um, so anything um, you know, that can be done, whether it's uh, <clears throat> supporting um, supporting investors who want to get smarter, Uh, whether it's connecting resources from universities. So this is something I'm starting to think about in New York City, um, is uh, whether we can use some of the new science and technology universities that we've set up in the last few years to help support the um, new mobility innovations. So we have New York University's Center for Urban Science and Progress, which I always tease them. It sounds like... A, sort of like Soviet-era uh, ur <laughs> urban informatics program, you know? It's like Khrushchev's big data institute or something. Um, Center for Urban Progress. Um, uh, Cornell, uh, Cornell Tech is a, uh, Cornell's uh, engineering campus, um, which is partnered with the Technion from Israel. Um, And Columbia uh, also has the uh, Earth Institute, which is a major climate science center, so which has a big urban focus as well, um, particularly around remote sensing um, satellite data. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that, that, that can be done. Um, and then, of course, the, the role of government, um, particularly around um, data sharing and data standards, uh, because that's such a crucial linchpin for mobility innovation um, and you know they can be a real catalyst in um, setting standards um, requiring mobility companies to share data um, in ways that can unlock opportunities for innovation um, so I think I think that there's there's a lot that can be done to um, make investors smarter um, It's not just about the investors being smarter when they arrive at the table. But just, just a step before, do you think that it should be done? Like, should we make... Because the, the investors I'm talking about, they are definitely not the representatives of the dumb money. Mm -hmm. However, there is a well-founded argument that 
let's say, investing in an e-scooter company uh, is perceived from a totally different angle than, than the three of us would, uh, would consider. Mm -hmm. it's not, first of all, it's not a mobility company. Let's say it's a marketplace company. And it fulfills all the... It, it ticks all the boxes of, of, the, of the good venture capital investment. Mm -hmm. And that's it. They don't even label or call it mobility investment. Mm -hmm. It's like, even if they do, it's not the core. It's not important. Mm -hmm. And the implications of it of this is that the whole theory of, of urban planning, which of course this company is is deeply rooted in, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is not considered. They created the city by supporting this given company by not considering the fact of doing so. And I just wonder if if there is any risk in this. So I think the I mean one way of thinking about the question you're asking is do you need to be a specialist to invest in mobility companies versus kind of a generalist investor. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what I think is an interesting question um, that it raises in my head is whether um, there are opportunities or the opportunities for investors who are not mobility specialists are actually more interesting. And the reason I th think a bit th about that is the more I look at the mobility sector, um, the more I realize that the big money is the things that it catalyzes, and particularly re real estate. Um, so you know, what, did, what did Travis Kalanick do as soon as he got kicked out of Uber? Real estate. He went and um, got involved with a company called Cloud Kitchens, which um, he's now rebranded as, uh, I think it's called City Storage Solutions or City Storage Systems. I, I can't remember what the name of the, the company is. But as I understand it, it's basically um, a holding company for ghost kitchens, which are um, uh, cooking facilities that do nothing but fulfill online orders and for, for restaurants that either... Um, you know, or like high-profile high restaurants uh, that have a big online business. And so they'll, you know, let's say it's like a David Chang restaurant in New York, and he's got Momofuku. Love he's David Chang. Yeah. <laughs> and David Chang's a bad example, but let's just use it. So he's got Momofuku in the West Village, and then there may be five Momofuku kitchens around Manhattan placed so that they're close to customers that have no retail storefront. All they do is fulfill delivery orders to the neighborhood that they're in. Oh, wow, okay. Like my, and, and what, <laughs> micro hubs. And what Kalanick's company does is manage those facilities. They're like a logistics provider. For the deliveries of this world of food No, they, they basically own those kitchens and rent them out to David Chang. Oh, wow, okay. So they're the facility operator and owner. They help him scale. Exactly. His brand. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but it's not just kitchens. They're going to do it for like every kind of e-commerce. So they're basically going to own everything in the e-commerce chain that is not an Amazon warehouse. So, um, I mean, just think of all the other businesses that are going to want to move stuff around streets that doesn't go in a brown box. Um, so that's what Kalanick's doing. 
And Uber's buying Deliveroo, right? Like Uber, and then Deliveroo owns this same kind of infrastructure. Deliveroo owns a bunch of hundreds of ghost kitchens all over Europe. Um, so those companies, like Uber buying Deliveroo is not Uber buying delivery service, it's Uber buying real estate, right? So that's fascinating to me. So the real opportunity is in the real estate for the last mile delivery infrastructure, or it's the logistics for I, I so and which is funny because I, often we you know when we look at we haven't talked at all about sort of like uh, package deliveries yeah. and all of those last yeah. mile solutions micro depots and so yeah. on dispatchments um, but effectively that's another way of solving the issue is yeah. like by having those little uh, well having this network of, yeah. of, of ghost kitchens or whatever yeah. else ghost yeah. ghost real estate right what other kinds of, of but so what it tells me is um, maybe you need a different kind of specialist, right? Like, and, and so having, a, having, in that sense, like, if you're only having transportation mobility experts in the room, they're not going to see that. Exactly. Uh, and this is actually one of the things, as a policy planning person, when I talk to people and talk to cities about automated vehicles, I insist that cities bring people to the table from inside city government who are experts outside of transportation. I want to talk to people from their aging department. I want to talk to people from their children's services. I want to talk to people from their department of watershed management, the people who, who care about how much paved surface there is in the city and who want to remove roads so that the water will drain better. And they want to get rid of vehicles so they can remove roads. Things that you never would think about when you talk about vehicles, unless what you care about is water. Um, so, um, talking to transportation people, the answer is always transportation. But talking to people who have other objectives about mobility, the answer is often less mobility or different kinds of mobility or mobility leading to something else. Mobility serving a purpose. Exactly. And not an end in not itself. Not an end in you itself. Know? So this, this basically means that... Uh, it's, a, it's a piece of a, of a delivering a service, right? It's a means to an end. It's also, we can understand it the way that VC approach might be perceived in this context as, a, as the opportunity, in fact, to the yeah. whole development of the cities in the future, if, yeah. I, if I read you correctly. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I think I think I think you know if if you're going to play in this place, you need somebody who understands the nuances because it's complicated, and the trade there's lots of trade-offs and um, lots of regulations changing fast that can break business models very quickly or open them up. Um, but I I think there's also the risk of like not seeing the daylight open up, you know and. Um, like, like in, in the policy world, um, you know, it's, it's the risk of becoming too, too much of a wonk, um, you know, and not seeing, not seeing the big picture. And I, I think the, the risk in investing is probably the same. Yeah, and also, I mean, one of the things is always like the potential impact of city regulation on your business yeah. model yeah. that might absolutely, you know, it looks great right now, but once you have the city backlash, 
um, because maybe it's a bad idea at scale, mm -hmm. at least with the current business model. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's always a, a big question as well. So, and I think some of those mobility companies are currently experiencing <laughs> that with um, Bird and others being like even banned in San Francisco or the city of New York forcing ride-sharing operators now to share certain data sets as well and so on. So. I mean, this was uh, the the work we published in 2014, the Reprogramming Mobility Study, which um, you know is really kind of a capstone to uh, the Rockefeller Foundation's five-year investment in, in transportation. Um, we're looking 20 years out in North America and the U.S. Um, you know, what does all this technology add up to? And um, what we were trying to say was. Um, Planning institutions are not prepared to deal with the pace of change and that the, the disruption that has occurred from ride sourcing, from TNCs, from Uber, Lyft, and their, their ilk, this is not a one-time disruption and we're going to return to a new equilibrium and business as usual can continue and you can keep planning and running your city same way, with the same methods and the same people and the same organizations, uh, that this is going to happen again and again and again and again. And I, I said that in 2014 and we shared the message and a lot of people went, oh yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that happens again. And then, you know, the scooters have come and like now the automated stuff is going to come and like it, the evidence is sort of starting to mount up that like, hey, maybe Townsend was right. Like, we are going to have one of these things every 18 months that comes out of nowhere. How much of this e-scooter, let's say, in your opinion, is hype? And how much of it is the beginning of a big urban trend? Um, I mean, I think, the, I think the scooters are potentially a bigger deal um, than, than uh, what's happened with ride, ride sourcing. Um, because they're completely operating in um, like the consumer electronics world. Um, it's, it's, it's reached like a part of the economy where there's very little regulation. Um, it's now competing directly with two modes that are the most sustainable um, kind of highest um, priority uh, walking and biking so like the early survey data is showing that a lot of the trips would have been taken by um, what are essentially like carbon negative modes of travel walking and cycling because you burn some of the food you eat um, <laughs> <laughs> you produce positive health benefits instead you use a small electric motor um, and produce some injuries, which are costly to treat. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, they're very appealing. I think they're, they're, I don't think it's hype at all. Um, I think it's going to be a very widespread thing. I mean, there's a lot of loose ends that I have to get tidied up. Um, but just the, I mean, the, the sheer, um, so we call this, this whole class of small electric vehicles. Once you add automation, which is going to be a trivial thing to do, 
um, automation will have to come down a lot in cost before it starts to get bolted on, but, um, and the, the case for automation in these vehicles isn't as compelling, um, but it'll be one of the things that allows the loose ends to be tied up. So one of the biggest problems with scooters is just that they're, they're untidy. I mean, they get left everywhere. They don't come when called because they don't have docks, right? So um, just having them be able to kind of zip over to the side of the road or come to the corner or, you know, come when called um, by the app requires a very modest amount of software. Um, they're also not very big, so they don't have to work that safely. So it's a pretty easy engineering problem. They're also not that valuable. So if they accidentally drive under a truck or you know, off a cliff or something, it's not that big a deal. So they will get automated quite soon. Um, and uh, you know, they'll become that much more useful because of that um, and that much more pervasive. Um, and uh, you know, they're, they're just gonna be everywhere. They're gonna be like you know, magic feet. Like, that's the way I think. So we call this whole category, whether it's scooters or skateboards, hoverboards, bikes. Um, you know, everyone makes fun of that Google self-driving bicycle video that came out a couple of years ago from Amsterdam. Yeah, that was Dutch. hilarious. I looked at that and was like, that is absolutely right on. I mean, I knew it was a joke, but I was like, that this is, this is very real. April Fool's. Yeah. Right. No, but it was, there was a group at MIT working on a, on a, on a self-driving bike at the time. Like it's, that's a very, very real thing. Um, and- How do you call this category? A rovers. Rovers, we call them rovers because they sort of roam in a territory. Um, and there's some very interesting urban design uh, possibilities that they open up um, because they basically, what they do is they make neighborhoods bigger. So you can take, um, uh, you know, the walkable radius of the neighborhood around a subway station and make it that much bigger. So you can have sort of um, in areas, uh, you, you can basically upzone cities um, because people can zip around over bigger areas. Um, I mean, I, I love... Um You brought us um, some of the booklets here, mm -hmm. um, Taming the Autonomous Vehicle. I'm just like um, uh, having it here. Um, I mean, I love the illustrations that you guys came up with, sort of, and also the storytelling in a sense. Maybe can you describe the project, what you've done? And, and yeah, so this is part of um, the, the last piece of work that we did um, for the Bloomberg Aspen Initiative on cities and autonomous vehicles, which was a, a year-long effort uh, with um, both of those organizations, Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Aspen Institute in the US, in 10 cities around the world, to try to, um, you know, in many ways, kind of similar to what I was trying to do with the Smart Cities book, um, craft a vision Uh, for the future of this technology that was city-driven and not industry-driven. Because there's so many kind of modern-day myths out there about what um, autonomous automated vehicles are going to be. Um, we'll have to get to that in a, in a second yeah. as well. Um, and, uh, you know, cities have 
a lot of goals for mobility um, that aren't centered on autonomous vehicles. And um, they're centered on human-powered human uh, and mass transit. Um, and we wanted to acknowledge that there's this industry vision that is centered on autonomous vehicles and sort of weave that in in ways that would support cities' existing goals, which um, are very well thought through and have very good reasons for being the way they are. So sort of taking, harvesting what we can from what industry is bringing to the table, um, discarding what is definitely not going to work or conflict with cities' cities goals. Um, Do you have an example? Uh, so I think the idea of private automated passenger cars in cities is probably a bad one in most cities. Um, you know, we, we had a wide range of cities in this project from Paris to um, Nashville, Tennessee. Tel Aviv, Sao Paulo, um, the Parisians made it very clear almost the minute they walked into the room that private autonomous vehicles would be banned from the city, um, if not immediately in the near future. Uh, whereas in Nashville, you know, Tennessee is a major auto manufacturing state. Um, they said it was almost impossible to imagine that ever happening that the state would never allow them to do such a thing because hmm. um, it would scare off the car makers. Um, so, so, so they would allow actually... Yeah, they would allow it. Okay. They would allow it, even though it's not good for the city. Right, but um, they, uh, their hands are tied. Right. So, um, you know, there's a kind of a wide variety of realities and um, abilities to, to, like, act on it, but... Um, yeah, uh, so, so that's private, um, empty vehicles, uh, what uh, Robin Chase, the founder of Zipcar, calls zero-occupancy vehicles, or ghost cars. So, um, you know, taking your self-driving Mercedes and sending it to go pick up your dry cleaning, um, that's a really bad thing, because you're, you're basically contributing to traffic. Um, with and producing no human mobility at all. Um, if everybody in a city does that, it's, it will strangulate the, the road network. Um, so there's a, there's a number of um, things that really contribute to excess travel demand that cities identified very quickly as things they didn't want, but are kind of bread and butter um, parts of, of the industry vision. Mm. Um, can, Anthony, can I, uh, I'm going to read one of the, mm, of the stories here. So Sally was just as hooked on instant delivery as her neighbors. We all love instant delivery, don't we? So, but when the daily jam of delivery trucks gave way to an even more menacing swarm of sidewalk bots, she felt like there wasn't much room on the sidewalk for her anymore. So Sally was very sad. So, and then it goes on. Um, I can see already the sideboard um, is like blocking the door entrance for the old granny who is very uh, outraged about this but then it goes on and sort of like how could it be urbanized from the city's perspective so now every block has a porter licensed by the city Sally's porter meets larger conveyor bots at the curb and carries the goods 
um, the last meter or two. And I remember when we talked before, you called this the last meter logistics, not the last mile logistics, but the last meter logistics, which I love. Um, so it goes on the story. The porter can also facilitate Sally's returns and even recycles packaging. In the rare instance when dispatch algorithms send something when she isn't there, the porter can hold items for redelivery when she returns. What I love uh, about those stories, first of all, there's a very specific way how you have written it. It's so very we can, we can per per response, right? per personalized. And, well, exactly. And I think you... Um, You, you told me about one of the, the most avid readers of those scenarios. Yes, my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, loves to read these. Um, she's seen me working on this project for over a year, um, which in her short life is a very long time. Um, and uh, she's fascinated by the technology. She's eager for this future to take place. Um, she also sees us getting packages every day because um, we're addicted to, not instant delivery yet, but... Um, and you know she wants she wants to solve these problems too. Um, so yeah, it's it's fun. And I you know I kind of joke that like if my ten year old daughter can understand it, it's like a perfect reading level for a mayor. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and of course the mayors totally agree. <laughs> But there's no, so and I think actually to be completely honest, I think it's a perfect level for everyone. I because so you know we always think oh the experts you know we need to need like use this jargon and somebody yeah, everywhere where we are expert there's so many fields where we are not an expert and especially in smart city most of the time we are non-experts most of the time we probably need to communicate I exactly like the, those kind of simple language i think it's know. a good test for whether whether it's urgent or not whether it's clear if, it's, if you can't boil it down you know maybe maybe you're not ready to deal with it yet um there's so much going on in this scenario um You know, one of the things we were trying to highlight, there's th I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues, but th that idea of the last meter, one of the things we were trying to highlight is that even though there's a tremendous amount of investment going into automating delivery in the last mile, because it's expensive, uh, but it's also uh, exploding. I mean, e-commerce in, in most of the developed economies is growing by about 15% a year, which means it's doubling every five years. And the parcel shipments are growing about the same rate, which is much faster than passenger travel. So freight, freight shipments are growing much faster than passenger. Um, uh, is it none of these, none of these robots anytime soon are going to be able to get through your front door, climb the stairs up to your stoop on your townhouse, um, get through the elevator, into your apartment block. I mean, cities are complicated. They're structurally, architecturally complicated, um, particularly cities that were built in the 19th and 20th century, like Berlin. Um, so we are going to need human beings. People, are, people aren't home. People aren't ready. They're on the phone. They're giving the kid a bath. They're preparing dinner. They're down at the corner having a coffee. Um, synchronizing delivery is really hard. The best solution that the consultants, so McKinsey actually, McKinsey's German office, has done one of the best studies on the last mile logistics. Their answer is package lockers. So they're saying basically everybody needs to move to a system where automated vehicles put packages in lockers at the corner. Another group has done surveys. People hate package lockers. 
<laughs> they want the packages delivered to their home. So what's the gap there, right? The, the solution for industry and the solution for the consumer don't meet. So our proposal, I don't know if this works, but our proposal is that maybe there's a role for a human worker in the middle. So the way we think of this is, you know, the best of, of machine intelligence and human intelligence, right? And this, this, is, this is compatible with how people more broadly are starting to think about AI and human workers together in the future across all industries. Um, but it's not about replacement, it's about rethinking how teams work and that, that uh, AI is going to become a part of better teams as opposed to just throwing people out of work. And I, I think it will also be one of the main contributors in terms of the whole acceptance yeah. of those technologies. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. I think one of the things most people are scared about is just, oh God, am I going to lose my job? Like, yeah. when am I going to lose my job? And I think part of the things that you're also showing, and maybe we can just, just um, as we um, you know, have to... Um, wrap up now, unfortunately, um, but it's also what you're looking at now, is like, what are some of the myths of the, this sort of like autonomous future that is being put out there right now? What is it going to look like, maybe much more likely in reality? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we've been sold is this kind of um, vision. There's a famous film from the US government funded demonstration in 1997 in California of the, the first automated highway uh, called Demo 97. And it's a bunch of General Motors K cars cruising down this, this desert highway in San Diego, perfectly synchronized. I mean, even the drivers have identical haircuts. <laughs> and they're identically spaced. There's no cities in sight. There's no buildings anywhere. And um, I think that's the vision that a lot of industry, a lot of people in government, and a lot of consumers have kind of carried forward that it's this perfectly synchronized, homogenous pod cars. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, it's going to look more like the web. Every vehicle is going to be different. It's going to have different software. It's going to behave differently, have different apps loaded on it. Um, you know, autonomous vehicles are going to be more like our phones. They're only going to, you know, have the same hardware maybe. But there's software and services and data and what they do and what we do with them and what we experience in them is going to be infinitely varied. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think they're going, to, they're going to be the perfect urban machine. They're going to adapt to our urban environments in a way that cars never did. We had to rebuild cities around cars. Autonomous vehicles will fit into the niches in cities um, in ways that, uh, that let us live you know, better and cleaner and address the problems that we have. Does so the most, it's very, it sounds I'm, almost liberating. I'm very optimistic. That's I think, the most I think, optimistic vision I've heard for years. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's the right technology for the right time. I really do. But let's, like, let's try to be negative now. And what's, what's the opposite of this optimistic vision? If, if things don't work as they should. I think the big risk um, is, is, that, um, is around freight and that... Uh, You know, we essentially let a handful of big online retailers um, use this to, to drive the cost of shipping down to nothing, um, turn the streets into a distribution system for, you know, cheap, 
manufactured goods from, I don't know, it won't be China anymore, maybe it'll be Africa or Southeast Asia. Um, we don't find ways to turn that towards more circular kinds of, uh, of consumption and recycling. Um, and uh, it just becomes a, a gigantic runaway energy hole. Um, that's a very real possibility. Um, I think Amazon is kind of moving the U.S. towards that right now. Mm. Um, and the next couple of years may make a kind of decisive turn towards that. But, but what does it hinge on, that scenario? Uh, it hinges on uh, our antitrust policy, whether we allow them to become a monopolist in the last mile. It hinges on our climate policy, which is probably lost now for the next few years. Um, yeah, I think really right now it's kind of down to antitrust. So it's kind of it's kind of funny that actually, like the personal politics of it, at least like the Trump administration has made the wrong decision on climate, but because Trump hates Jeff Bezos so much, he may actually make the right decision on antitrust. <laughs> so he may block Amazon just out of you know personality. Um, which I think would actually be a good thing. So he may and make the right move. You don't see any any role for the cities there? Not in the U.S. I don't. They don't have much power. to really. They they can do some things at the curb, but Amazon will find a way around it. Because um, I think we've just had this. Be, yeah, we've just had this uh, this whole um, charade around the Amazon HQ two. I don't know if you saw that, which has clearly showed who has the upper hand when Amazon deals with local governments in the U.S. They, they really, um, it was like, uh, you have a lot of like s and There was the competition about the headquarters, here. right? You have like a lot of S&M yeah. clubs here in Berlin, right? This is <laughs> kind of the relationship between Amazon and its and cities. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. No, but I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think here the, I don't know also from your experience um, consulting with, with cities also in Europe, I think here, there might be slightly more hefty influence also from the city's perspective, from yeah. the regulatory perspective of just what what cities do allow, what uh, authorities allow here in terms of last mile logistics, how they can steer it and, and uh, um, mandate it effectively. Yeah, I, I think there... I think you're in a much better position here um, just because cities have done so much more thinking uh, and put in place like a much better set of ideas and initiatives uh, that logistics companies will have to move into. Um, it'll be in their interest and like, yeah, I, I think all of those things, moving up the timetable and raising the uh, incentive structure faster is probably the, the priority. So um, you're obviously thinking a lot about the, the whole topic of autonomous driving and the impact it has um, for your new book. Mm. So um, maybe as one of our last questions, sort of like, did you take any, like, it's also your first time here in Berlin mm. with us. Um, so... Um, Were there any, any things that inspired you from this trip already? Like ideas, thoughts that um, 
or reflection simply, you know, based on the work you've done or what 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 you're writing right now, that um, where you feel um, um, this was a useful visit as well in the sense of like being here in Berlin. Oh, I mean, there's there's so much to learn from Berlin, um, just from the city itself, um, the uniqueness of the scale and structure. Um, There's something about the the streetscape uh, that's just inherently really flexible. You can see the size of the avenues and the the um, not the grid, but sort of the network of streets has allowed it to accommodate new mobility technologies. Um, you know, over the last 150 years, in a way that I think is really allowed it to evolve and, and will continue to. It's very well situated. Um, so I'll be eager to see how automated vehicles become a part of that mix. But I think it's going to be easy for Berlin. Hmm. Um, I find it fascinating that the tension here between... Um, it's sort of uh, right on this like interesting um, balance between being concentrated and being really spread out and um, almost at this tipping point where if we didn't have these technologies it would be a little too spread out but I see people you know using apps and using mobility services whether it's bikes or taxis or the arrival times on the U-Bahn to pull it together And it's like Berlin is a much more connected city now. I just sense because of that, right? Um, and because of the presence of so many young people who exploit that. Um, and that's real. It's really interesting to see it so clearly and so concentrated hmm. that the city is thriving because of that connectedness. Um, you don't see it so clearly in other places where. You know, they would have succeeded anyway because of the density right. or, or the transit network, or they're failing because they're too spread out mm -hmm. because the land use or whatever. Like right. here, We just, have a little bit of both. We have you're the... so close to the tipping point where it could have failed. Um, you know, like if we were in the 1980s, Berlin probably would be really, really struggling, even with the same demographics and the same global economy. I don't know. That's just my theory. But I think that... The, The timing is really good, so it's fascinating. Interesting. Anthony, I have a feeling that we could talk for hours. <laughs> yes, yeah, there's so much more to talk pleasure. about, but maybe we yeah, we have find another good. another chance yeah. to to um, have. Well, a... I'll be back. I mean, I'm. I'm it's going to take me months to process what I've learned in a few days here. And he is. Um, is there anything else you want to sort of like um, any last? last uh, thoughts you have uh, any about your current work anything else you want to mention that we didn't touch on um, no I just think um, you know my big focus right now is trying to follow the money um, I think uh, both the, the money coming in mm -hmm. uh, the investments and the money going out um, that's really um, that's the big thing that's changing now there's always been new technology in transportation and mobility, but um, the amount of money now is really new. Um, it hasn't, we haven't seen a big influx of money uh, in a big like new 
flow of money out in a very, very long time. And when it happens, historically, that's when things really, really change a lot. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time recently studying what happened when we shifted from horse-drawn streetcars to electric-powered streetcars about 120, 130 years ago. Um, It probably happened in Berlin around the 1880s, 1890s. Um, 1890s, probably. and it was just a massive transformation of cities and the, the, the traction industry, as they called it back then. Um, I think something similar is happening. So and now with the, uh, the soft banks of this world. Yeah, soft bank is a big part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but who's behind soft bank? So tell us. The Saudis. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank I you. really enjoyed it and I hope that our listeners uh, have, have the same view. I'm sure they have. So we, we hope to have you back here in Berlin soon. And Anthony, is there, if people want to get in touch with you or follow your work, is there what's, what's a good place? I think Twitter's the best. I'm Anthony Mobile on Twitter. That's kind of the main, um, the main sounding board. Um, And right now I'm kind of uh, keeping my head focused on working on the book. Um, What is it going to be called? The working title is Ghost Road, The High Stakes of the Driverless Revolution. So we are certainly looking forward to that. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Anthony. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of City Rebels. We hope you enjoyed it. And make sure you follow us on our social media accounts and pre-order Anthony's book, Ghost Roads online, which comes out next year, June. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, feel free to send us a mail at hello at urbanimpact.eu. That's it, folks. Take care and catch you on the flip side.